In order for shame to be rendered powerless in our lives, we must be witnessed. We must be seen. Your gifting is going to seem like things that are just very obvious. They're going to seem like, well, everybody can be this welcoming. But everybody can see that moment where I just saw. It's going to feel like anybody could do it. And that's what makes it your gifting. Watch how people avoid the face of somebody in need or asking who makes you uncomfortable. Every one of those faces reveal God. We have to remember our past and recount the things that God has done for us. And then that gives us faith to keep going to where he wants us to be. Hey guys, welcome back to the Incense Podcast. I'm Blaine. And I'm Sam. And do we say that while we are socially distant, we're actually in the same room? When you ask the question that is the thing, I feel a little... (laughs) Twisted on the inside out. <laughs> Do we admit? It's, really, it's weird seeing your face. Yeah, it's nice to be in the same room with you. Mm. And also to think that we're having conversation. <laughs> wait, wait, my response to that was just an mm. I think people mm. are going to misread that. <laughs> 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 it is good to be in the same room. And Blaine, would you like to know how my minivan is like Vin Diesel? I would love to know how your minivan is like Vin Diesel. <laughs> well, it takes up a lot of space. It can carry a lot of people. And when being shot at, it has run flat tires and can evade the pursuers. This is really changing my picture of Vin Diesel. (laughs) You know, neither of them have a lot of hair. The list actually goes on surprisingly long. Run flat tires. I do need to apologize to you, Vin, if you ever do listen to this, which... He's an an avid listener. I know you do every, every Tuesday morning, so... Good morning, and I'm sorry. He listens to it during his middle set of 500 pull-ups. Golly. Per arm. Um, you discovered that there is a thing, a drive-flat tire. It's a run-flat, RFT. It sounds yes. so fake. It, it might be. It's not 100% certain at this point. The car um, is not back from the shop, is I think the punchline. Yeah, yeah. So... I have experienced a lot of things breaking recently, and the most recent of which happens to be one of the tires on my minivan. And this sense of futility, low-level antagonism seems to be present like 95% of the time. Yes. And it saves room for the 5% of the time for like the true heartbreaking tragedy, which we're not going to talk about today. That is a difficult portrait of reality. It it feels like the pessimist claiming to be a realist is what it feels like. But it it also is one of those categories for Ian Sons that we're like, this is just a theme that comes up over and over and over again. And so if we don't name it and acknowledge it and share some of those moments and share what we do with them and how they're maybe getting easier or better to deal with. I think that we're going to waste our pain there. And you know how I feel about letting Dan down. Yeah, that is some, some good bracketing. This conversation originated around several flat tires and broken water heaters and then sort of spread out from there. But it is true that there are sort of two experiences that uh, begin to characterize a young man, our experience of difficulty. Mm -hmm. And there is 
the everyday experience of what seems to be a kind of casual sabotage or just a nagging opposition. Yeah, it's not like it doesn't really care that you're there, but it's going to thwart you anyway. Yeah, kind of like that. And then there is some real pain and difficulty. And the real pain and difficulty conversation is actually its own conversation that's coming at another time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But today, it's like, what do you what do you make of a few different stories? Oh, and oh yeah, right. Yeah. Here's, so here's one. But is it is it a crappy story? <laughs> oh, I should pivot and tell that story. Yeah. Oh, okay. So Em and I, after some experiences with miscarriage, had our second kid. You know, full term baby. So awesome. And I forgot how to infant and a little bit what they were like. Mm. and It's because your brain is making you a cocktail of chemicals every five minutes and force-feeding it to you, so you, just, you forget. That did happen because this little guy has experienced some very intense reflux and evidently a significant minority of babies have this experience where one of the upper valves on their digestive tract doesn't close at the right time. So when their stomach contracts, it just sends stomach acid straight up into the esophagus. And it does not sound pleasant. Not only is that uncomfortable, but like, you know, babies get to the point where they're, there's like blood in their spit up. And Ugh. even though it's all sort of in quotes, in many cases, okay, some kids need surgery. But it, it's the, the okay version of surgery. It's the, the, well, actually, the okay version is where your kid is just crying. Anytime they're awake because they're uncomfortable. And so it was, oh, how do we infant? Oh my gosh. Hey, what? Why is he crying so much? And then I brought my baby books back down and I was flipping through. From your attic? Yeah. I don't, well, crawl space. Oh, I, I and didn't actually I, that. I use my crawl space for storage because I use my garage for trying to fix a motorcycle and also storage. <laughs> yeah, I was eating your garage. <laughs> I use my garage for stuff that I find on the side of the road. Mm -hmm, cardboard boxes. Cardboard boxes. You're not a hoarder. But it is a good place to store things before they get stored. I'm not a hoarder. I just see the value in things. Oh, wow. And I, it's funny, in the progression of the book of sort of diagnosing why babies are crying, it gets worse. And I remember I opened it and I like saw the reflux page. and was like, ooh, that sounds terrible. And it worked backwards. And I started with, well, he probably just blank. Oh, no, not that. Well, he probably just this thing. And then went, oh, it, oh maybe it is this. Oh, shoot. So I have a kid who's crying and, you know, most of the night and can only sleep vertical. And then Emily tells me in the middle of one afternoon, hey, when the heater comes on, something smells really musty. And <laughs> Susie also got a supernatural nose ability. They have a word for that. It's called scent, but um, <laughs> words are hard. So Meganosmia. No, is that actually? Oh, jeez. I, I regret. I feel like I set myself <laughs> I just, up for this moment. No, that one I made up. Did you? If you can't smell, it's anosmia. So the opposite of that, meganosmia. Big smell. Big nose. <laughs> and so I'm like, oh, I know exactly what it is. And I go over and the previous owner of the house installed the water heater in a way that causes plumbers to scratch their heads because when the pressure relief valve starts leaking, it just leaks right into sort of the crucial areas of the main floor living space. It's a pretty large gathering of water, and there's not exactly And there's a nowhere drain. for it to go. There's no drain. 
I was on the phone with a plumber friend. They just goes, assumed he was going to go through the pipes into the faucets and the shower. Into the, yeah. and that's where the water's going. The funny thing is, is actually, there is like a quote-unquote drainage hole drilled into the crawl space, but it's like four inches over, and it's just a hole in the floor by the base, and so the water goes the other way. So I'm like, I'm like watching water come out of my pressure relief valve. No idea how long it's been going on. Go down into the crawl space. Oh, it's been going a long time. Oh, man. Oh, no. This is going to be expensive. Like, go back up, and I'm trying to fix these things simultaneously. And then my daughter, who has been trying to get a clogged toilet to flush, and, like, causing this, this poopy cataract just to come out of the bathroom. And, like, so I've got, like, screaming baby, pressure relief valve, plumber on the phone, and then I have a five-gallon bucket in a yogurt container that I'm using to, like, collect the poopy water to stop the advance of the flood into the hallway. And just like kind of having this moment of like, not all of my life feels this chaotic, but most of the things <laughs> in my life seem to function about this well. Oh. Most things seem to break about as reliably as my water heater. See, I feel like moments like that, you have those out of body questioning how you got here type moments. You're like, really? This is my life. Like I never, I never would have signed up for scooping poopy yogurt water into the bathtub to store it for later. Like this is horrible. Nobody wants the situation. But I've also noticed that it happens to me, like in small things. So, being a homeowner, I get the the joy of everything breaking all of the time and needing to solve all of those things. And I think. This is like some of the fruit maybe of living in 2020 with access to the entirety of human knowledge with a few clicks and a few typey types. I'm expected to know how to deal with everything. Even here at Anson's, we're like, you should be willing to try to fix your radiator. When I bought that new car, now that used car a couple of years ago and like it started just smoking immediately. Like I want the willingness to try and step in to fix the thing, but I also don't need to like know how to do everything perfectly. That would sort of wipe away the student phase that we think that we're in. However, when my uh, accordion doors for our washer and dryer broke when we moved in five years ago, a good day. It has begun this like long attrition of can I just sort of make it work? Can I like figure out how to do this thing, that thing? And because I have access to the internet and all knowledge, it feels like I'm a failure for not figuring it out or knowing how to do it right away. We're doing a little bit of like trial and error and therefore like I've I've got it. And so projects like that end up just sort of sitting at my peripheral and I wrote about this in volume four of Anson's and Headspace of just like rolling into my house. I'm in the kitchen, but all I can see in my mind are all the holes I've poked in my bedroom wall and how I haven't taken the five seconds to spackle that and let it dry. And Susie had to like lead me by the nose to get it done. So recently my project was the thing that went wrong was our sprinkler system because we've been gardening this year and it's been awesome. And anytime you move towards good things, this opposition starts rearing its head. So Susie gets bit by a black widow in the garden. We hang up these light bulbs that mom gave us, I don't know, years ago. And we're going to be like, it's going to be so summery. We'll hang up these light strands. And one of them shatters and gets lost in the grass. And we're like, oh, great. Now the kids can't be out here in bare feet because there's like broken glass somewhere around here and I can't find it all. 
And then we spray some stuff and it's like super toxic and goes places it's not supposed to go. This feels like thwart, 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 thwart. Susie does some weeding. Pokes a couple holes in the sprinkler system. So I'm digging a hole in my yard where we were trying to fix the grass. And I feel like I'm seven. I feel like I don't have what it takes to fix a sprinkler system, but I don't want to pay a bunch of money I don't have to have a repair guy come and fix it. And so I sort of have to do it. And I feel inconvenienced by needing to fix it. And I feel mad at myself for feeling inconvenienced. And I want to build this resiliency that's like okay with being okay with hard things. So I buy one product, a JB water weld, and it doesn't fix the pipe. When I finally get to it, it just ends up successfully ruining a pair of gloves because it's stuck really well to the leather, but not so great to the kind of muddy pipe that I hadn't perfectly cleaned off. And then I get this fiberglass tape and blah, blah, blah. You know, it's just like a week and a half go by and I finally fix this and filled in the hole. And that half of the yard is looking sort of sad for having the water turned off that whole time. That feels like my skeptic talking about reality like broken glass black widow somewhere chemicals somewhere sprinkler system with wrong things and now i gotta buy myself a new pair of work gloves this is just this low level of how am i supposed to be a decent human being let alone a decent dad in the midst of this i mean we're smiling while we're telling these stories but i am very aware that There is an effect over time to this experience. And we could keep riffing. Like, you just got back from climbing some mountains, and it involved one difficulty after another. Relational difficulties, mechanical difficulties, crowdfunding difficulties, like back home and back into parenting difficulties. Overstretching our babysitting ask. And then uh, two days later, the, the flat in the minivan. Right. Wow. One problem for me, there's just a level of kind of embarrassment Mm -hmm. uh, because many of the things that are currently difficult are things even that I had ardently prayed for in the past season, like to carry a baby to term. And there are some very unhelpful, pat, religious-y responses to that. Like, you know, don't turn your answered prayer to your last problem or do you know how many people would love to have a, a house that they own and a water heater to fix? If we can just bracket all of that, life is very challenging almost at every turn. And what I discover in myself uh, towards God <laughs> is this feeling I was processing with M the other night and the sentence that came up from me to Jesus was, Your world is insanely difficult. Not, you know, appropriately requiring, not I'm being initiated into my destiny, but like, no, 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 no. The pervasiveness of difficulty, the number of new challenges relationally, environmentally, mechanically, a pretty normal guy faces on a pretty normal week. I'm like, this is insanely difficult. Mm. This thought has just come to me, Blaine. I've had several conversations with some of my therapist friends, of which I feel like I have an abnormal amount for an average guy, but... I'm going to make a joke that you're just calling your therapist your friends, but... 
they actually are friends of yours that <laughs> I just have to pay them ha- more. Happen, they're friends that happen to be therapists. I just pay them more than my other friends I pay. There's this understanding that a distinct, even violent, single moment of trauma is actually more easily dealt with than a low-lying, peripheral, extensive experience of trauma because that isn't as clean, even if it's messy, if that makes sense. It's not as acknowledgeable. You can't identify and isolate particular moments of fragmentation or grief. And so it ends up coloring what used to be a white canvas to now a black canvas. And, and how do you get those layers off of what could be a lifetime? And I was so struck by that when I first heard it, because I'm like, no, surely like the person that's in a car accident and witnesses a death or, this, or someone that experiences intense abuse, like there's that moment, like that's horrible. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want that. And just to have this other gentle pushback to go like, those are horrible. Yes. But sometimes a gash on your body is easier to treat than a body that has been fully pricked by needles everywhere. And it was this moment that caused me to go, okay, wait a second. Like, how does this connect to the low lying but continual frustration and thwarting that ends up feeling like it's not a big deal? And therefore, you shouldn't have to really process its effect on you or how you are being changed by it. That is a mind blower of a concept to go, it is actually easier to resolve the trauma of a car accident than it is the trauma of not liking being in cars and yet a parent who's kind of a crazy driver. Or it's easier to resolve uh, the death of a friend than the fear that a person experienced just in their home. Or the neglect of your friends over years. Right. I mean, holy schnitzel. Right. Yes. So if it's the thwarting thing, if it's like the frustration, shouldn't it be easier to deal with the scooping the poop? (laughs) If it was just the one, it might be easier. You know, around here, we have this framework of initiation and being drawn from one level to another by our entrance into difficulties that we work out with God. That is kind of helpful, but for me, it becomes problematic when it is so everywhere. And especially men, when we just start talking about our lives, it's like when you just kind of begin unpacking, what do you do with life's difficulty? And how do I not become the jaundiced older man who is like, oh no, life is one damn thing after another. Life is hard. And there is a very wounded and cynical set of assumptions in that conclusion. Life is hard. It just reads like, deal with it, even though it can't quite be dealt with. Handle it, even though you're not Mm -hmm. enough to handle it. And you are alone. And though that will never stop being painful, you can sort of ignore the pain. Mm. Yeah, right. Like that just speaks of there is a choice being made in every one of those moments 
there's an invitation into how you see yourself and how you see reality and how you see God, whether it's clear that that's happening or not. And and probably more so when it's not super clear, because that's when it's like deep agreement that you could be just continuing to partner with. And so for me recently, I've been musing on what are the differences that me a decade ago would be struck by about me today. And part of this was spurred on by a conversation that Susie and I had while on a drive. She was just reflecting that we we seem to be fairly playful people and that that isn't something that's changed. And we, and we like that, that there's dance parties happening, that there's just, there's a pursuit of joy that I love that we're not fabricating is, is just there. We like being silly. We like being playful. And it made her just sort of wonder, like, have I actually changed that much? And so thus the conversation of looking back over 10 years and to go, oh, I would hope that me 10 years ago, so at this moment, that would be a 21-year-old me, would be struck that I am much more patient, that I am willing to take things a little bit slower in order to do them right, and that I have more resilience about myself. And now all that goes out the window as soon as the flat tire comes in the car with my family loaded in and we are four hours away from home and it's Memorial weekend. Everything is closed. My wife's phone is dead. My phone is dying. And there's like all the scenarios are going through my head of how am I going to get my family home? And I feel like I'm seven. Like I know how to change a flat tire. I don't have a donut. I don't have a spare. I have these weird run flat things that I got to like sort of maybe get some more air into and then hobble home slowly on while people just blast past me yelling obscenities at the slowpoke minivan. Like I never want to be that guy. But when I'm able to go, no, no, what are the things that I like? I want to be continuing to cultivate resilience, slow down. It's okay. Like, all of this can be initiation, as you were saying. That, if that's a framework, then that's not wasted. Then I'm not wasting the countless money I actually have wasted at Home Depot buying the wrong thing to fix the wrong thing in my yard. That's all part of crafting myself away from being that jaundiced old man and into someone that 10 years, 40 years from now, I'm able to go that patience, that willing to take things a little bit slower, that presence, that resilience, that's only increased rather than a, that bitterness has increased. It is the turning point where we go, difficulty in and of itself does not generate growth. And you talking about you have this framework in mind and the framework being part of the key where difficulty plus orientation or difficulty plus interpretation leads to growth. But to go, Difficulty that is situated, that is nested in a context, can help you make sense of your life. The problem is that context is the thing that's hard, where especially when it's the low-stakes things where I go, the major catastrophes of my life have not all been that hard to interpret. But sort of the everyday ennui of opposed minutiae, like the difficulty of the sprinkler, the difficulty, of, like they're the best examples because I go, man, the things in my life that don't seem to be all that important are hard to frame, which is a huge problem if a frame or a context is the thing that is going to help me live my life and actually let a flat tire or a broken water heater 
lead to greater patience, greater resiliency. Oh, yeah, totally. And I also just have to admit that often it takes a while for that framework to come back. Like I would say it took me a week with the sprinklers, almost the entirety of the arc for me to like begin to remember that this needs to be interpreted and that I have a choice and can play an active role in that. For the first week, it was just, it was in my way and I was just living in that same story of everything goes wrong all the time and it's not my fault. I don't want to have to deal with it, but meh. Like it, it was just that. Like I was just back in it. I'm like, wow, I'm 31 and uh, a father and I just, <laughs> I don't want to deal with this. And it it took a little while for me to go, oh, 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 right, right. This is again, one of those things that, I need to interpret, I need to be present to, I need to maybe even after the fact, invite the father into to help bring some interpretation. Because in the moment, like the, the, the scale is so interesting, right? Like my bifolding doors, I can kind of neglect for five years and sort of pretend like it's fine, even though I'm thinking about them. My sprinkler, I can kind of take a week. The flat tire inside the road in the wrong side of the state with my family takes me like, I can't, I can't like put that off. And therefore the sense of, it wasn't even like abandonment. Like I just, I found that I was angry that there was another thing I had to deal with. Just listening to the air rush out of that tire. Like I was just mad. And as we were driving along, I found myself wondering like, why is that? Like, I don't want that to be my first emotion when something is in the way. Like, can't I have some other reaction? Can't I respond with, okay. I didn't look for this, but father, would you, would you father me in this? That is so mature and so not my reaction at all. I'm just sitting there fuming and Susie's all encouraging. You're great. You're a great dad. You're so capable. I'm like, thank you for encouraging me. You just make me feel worse right now. I just, I know. (sighs) Oh yeah. It's so good, bad. (laughs) In that moment, the way forward is the path of the sun. Uh, but a couple, a couple observations on a, on the way to that. When it comes just to reading your life, and it's much easier for me, which is revealing, to think of someone else than to think of myself. In this example, I'm just picturing a young guy and going, "Hey, you over there." It is really hard to remember that God's restoration plan for the universe is not top down. It's not actually an invading army coming from heaven. It is allying with, empowering, raising up people on the ground level who end up changing the entire world and go, no, 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 hang on. You realize that you are the restoration plan for the world. You and I, you know, I was jazzed about this. Just one illustration. We had a conversation recently in your backyard where I went, you know what's so cool about the 144,000 number in the book of Revelation that people have taken some really weird directions is that it's a military census. And in the first chapter of Numbers, which should be titled In the Wilderness, because that's the original title, Moses does a military census and he goes, each of you 12 tribes muster 12,000 men. We are pulling the army together to go take the promised land. 12 times 12, 144,000. I didn't do that math. I knew it from the book. And then 
in the book of Revelation, John hears those who the Lord has assigned are numbered 144,000, and he knows it's a military census. The army is being called together again. And he turns and looks, and he sees regular people living their lives. <laughs> it goes like, okay, so God's army is here, and it is you! And it, it's like, what is? what do I do with my unbelief in the face of that fact of like, hey, guy, for whom it's really difficult? Blaine. Blaine. In a way that felt really unimportant. Like, you had creeping Jenny coming up through your mulch again, and you had a baby who's crying you could not address, and you had like some church conflict, like, and just went, what if the substance of your life was that you were a key part of the restoration of the world, such that your life was opposed, such that you actually had to find a deep life with the Father because everything hung on it. It wasn't insignificant. It was actually deeply significant. I'm relieved a little bit. Well, why relieved? My mind did some things that my mouth did not do, everybody. <laughs> oh, and I'm just going to take that out of context. Tell me, so isn't that just... Let me tell you I some of the places moment. that my mind went. Yes. My mind went, but I don't think that. Mm. And then I went, which is okay, because actually very few people think that, such that one of the first things Jesus has to do in almost every encounter with a person in the biblical narrative is radically reframe their story. Mm. So it's like before he gives them instructions, before he addresses their question, comes this staggering reframe. And just one, you and I were talking about this yesterday. There's this interesting thing that happens in the story of Elijah the prophet, where he's just had the famous showdown on Mount Carmel where the fire comes down on the altar and then he kills a couple hundred people with a sword, presumably. Yeah, we don't like to focus on that part if of I'm, the story. If I'm reading that right. Hmm. And then he takes off into the desert, falls asleep in the desert. Actually, first he asks that God would kill him because he goes, you have utterly abandoned me. My life is so hard. Falls asleep, wakes up. Jesus is there. Jesus has made him breakfast. And... Jesus says this line that uh, you're doing Old Testament, and so you know Jesus, the the angel of the Lord was an- there, angel of the Lord, and so boom, baby, go listen to Bible Project on the angel of the Lord. Yes, and you'll understand why Blaine's saying Jesus. <laughs> exactly. Thank you, Sam, for those people who are reading along with us and finding that it says the Angelos Yahweh, actually the Malach Yahweh, probably. Pre-incarnation, Jesus is there. And he says this line, eat for the journey is too long for you, which evidently reframes the entire story. Because you go, wait, uh, Elijah went into the desert to hide and die. What journey was Jesus talking about? Oh my gosh. He was communicating something of Elijah's story to him that Elijah intuited because after that, he ran all the way to Mount Sinai. Well, not ran. He traveled all the way to Mount Sinai and went, whoa. He had viewed himself as an isolated prophet against massive odds with a very difficult life. And all of a sudden, just by using this phrase and just by going, 
the journey is too long. Hint, hint, hint. You are going to Sinai. Hint, hint, hint. What I'm saying is that you are the next step in the restoration project of God's original plan. And it's enough that it changes the course of Elijah's story and go, whoa, even this great prophet who seems to have a pretty good situational awareness. I mean, he's seen fire come out of the sky. So it would seem like that guy, high stakes all the time, therefore he can interpret his life. Oh, actually, no, he needs God to show up Mm -hmm. and give him a narrative that situates his suffering so that he can keep going. Mm. I love this story. And I've actually seen it play out in great and large scales these days in people's lives, like having moments that are very reorienting and clarifying and to go like, this is what the season has been about. Here's who you are. That's actually a big part of like the new name is to give yourself that mythic orientation of who am I in your kingdom and what am I supposed to be about? And that actually lets you frame some of who you are and walk with a little bit more dignity. I would also say that that story in this moment makes me think of our intimate private language with God that is that are helpful ways of of breaking through the moments of like isolation and difficulty and that sort of thwarting for one friend that's seeing uh, great blue herons or our parents I think it's finding heart rocks for me sometimes it's seeing hawks or other types of birds like that is this private breakthrough that's small it isn't it isn't quite the same charge of like you have to do it you are like you are the hope you are the army go 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 though there have been those moments i would say that sometimes all i get is listening to the cry of a hawk in the midst of fighting through difficulty fighting through all of my reaction to that difficulty fighting through the self-hatred of that reaction to that difficulty fighting through the warfare that is probably causing a lot of all of these reactions and then there'll be this hawk cry pull me away and go oh okay you're here. This is our language. That's the thing that draws me back to you, Father. Okay. Now I can actually feel like I'm not just pressed against the sweaty wrestling mat of a very small thing and recognize that each of those moments are that choice to be initiated, to grow, and to walk as the person I am and am becoming. Yeah, that's so good. I'm really glad you called it back to intimacy out of the you are the army, go, go, go. Because that would be a disturbing final takeaway of I may never. Gosh. No? Uh, To go. (laughs) Uh, You're God's army, so like, mm, grind it out is not the same as like, oh, wait, but how? And Mm -hmm. the interesting thing that I thought of was in the Blessing and Cursing podcast, we talked about the fact that God doesn't actually curse the ground. Adam does. But by the time you get to Lamech, the story that Lamech, the uh, polygamist murderer, has is like the ground that God cursed. And I went, oh, that's actually really interesting in this conversation because by Lamech's time, humanity has come to read the difficulty of life as God's cruelty. Mm. And he's like, it is so hard to pull stuff from the ground because God made life so hard mm-hmm. and went, we are at war. The human heart is the prize. You're meant to live in a deep union with God. The enemy is absolutely opposed to this. And so, like, it's so hard to remember that, like, what the enemy wants 
is to use our suffering to poison our union with God and to offer an interpretation that's like, you are very alone. Or not even if you're alone, you're just not enough for this. Yeah, and what I would say is really interesting, back to that clear trauma, diffuse trauma, we often find it easier to go to God in moments where it's very clearly difficult. So around a death, around a big loss, like those actually are moments where the intimacy is the only thing. Otherwise, everything's going to fall apart. And therefore, it's better to not have those big dramatic moments from the enemy side, right? It's better to have that low laying, I think I can probably do this on my own and maybe God is at fault here moments. Yes. Maybe God is at fault or I just suck or something. Wow. What would it actually look like to go, the stakes are high because I play this pivotal role in the overthrow of evil and the ushering in of the restoration of all things. I play that role through my deep life as a son, walking out difficulty with the father. And so in these difficulties, the needed response is to find that life with the Father, even as his heart for me will come into question. And the night that I had discovered the water damage and the leaking uh, pressure relief valve and a number of other plumbing issues, it turned out, old houses, man. M's question to me was, what would the Father's response be if that was Jesus' water heater? And it was really interesting because I went, Jesus is water heater. I don't know. Jesus just could fix a water heater. He was a craftsman. He's good at everything. And went, oh, no, no. Jesus actually says that he lives out of his union with his father. And M's response was, you know that the father would draw near, that the father would enter it and walk it out and share in the stakes. That's like one of the most isolating things about casual problems is that it doesn't matter to anybody else. And one of the amazing things that happens in like friend groups is when someone actually throws in with you. But, you know, when I was actually first getting into road biking, my ramshackle bike broke and there was a contrasting response. And there was one kind of person who went, oh man, that's so hard. The subtext of which is like, yep, been there, and you will get through this, and this is your problem. And one friend in particular, who his response was to keep asking questions and then show up with a toolbox and then kind of like walk it out together. And it is a model for me of what the father's heart is like, where he doesn't stay at a distance and go, man, broken sprinkler, huh? It's tough. It's like, no, he, he is the one who shows up and goes, man, this is tricky and like walks through step by step. The problem is that that's the most opposed reality in the world. Mm -hmm. And also my unbelief gets in the way. And Mm -hmm. also like sometimes it just doesn't seem possible or worth it or whatever it is to break through to the point where I go, yeah, but the father and I are totally walking out this refluxy baby right now. Mm Mm-hmm. So Susie and I are walking back to the first car that had the flat two days before the second car that had the flat. And 
or like a mile away from it. And I find myself praying that there would be a miracle that the tire would be inflated. I, I watched it completely empty itself. So I knew it was, I knew it was gone, but I, I was praying that somebody would have left a can of fix a flat or that really a, a true miracle would have happened and that the tire would have sealed and reinflated. And my prayer was, I, also, I included very uh, humbly that this wasn't for me. This wasn't because I didn't want to deal with a flat tire in the middle of a mountain town. This was because I wanted to be able to share the story of the miracle so that God could be glorified. Yes, I want God to be glorified in all my successes. And <laughs> I'm walking down the road. I've just said that prayer out loud. Susie's sort of chuckling at me. And I hear the Father kindly and playfully say to me, I can be glorified by you changing the tire too. And I just had this moment of like, oh, right. Actually, you, I don't believe that you caused this in order for me to have some story to tell about it. But I do believe that you are inviting me into a relationship as we deal with this together and that my heart's posture can be to be glorifying you in the midst of it. Yeah. Would have been awesome if it reinflated, though. I mean, come on. Ah, wouldn't it have been? That's nah, so good. No, it is so good Wait, to go. Is that, a, is that our outro? Can no. We, is that, that would be hysterical. <laughs> a long pause. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't life suck? It um, would have been hysterical for an outro. Oh, no, no, no. Because, well, it is so revelatory. The father's response being, you can actually show what life is like with me by the way you walk this out, not by it not happening. And it, again, hinges on how does someone recover, return to cultivate that level of connection with the Father and just going, man, out of my current experience where that is really hard, what are the things that are helping? Well, first point, it is a process. And I am aware that the first thing often is well, this combination of belief and warfare and go, sometimes I do have to start with the warfare, binding the accusation, dealing with you know, the level of destruction and going, no, you cannot speak or move in this enemy. And then on the belief side, there's this level of recovering what the father is like that usually begins by looking at Jesus and going like, what is the father like? Well, when I could do nothing, he did send Jesus to get me. And that's the beauty of the much abused verse in John 3. I was like, he loved you. He sent his son to get you, to like draw you out of darkness and return you to eternal life, to restore the relationship with you and get off the religious language and go like, he did everything so that he could actually come in and relate with you when your retire was flat. Recognizing that, there's this process for me of going, what is in the way? And I usually just have to go, Jesus, I can't do more right now than asking you to come into my unaddressed pain. Because over time, small difficulties add up and they actually do poison the water. And I go, you seem really distant because of how many things have gone wrong. We probably can't address all of that right now, 
but I risk believing. I risk renouncing unbelief. And just I ask you to come into how hard things are to cover it or to begin covering it such that some experience of the Father as intimate becomes possible again. Question for you is, walking back to the car, it was the voice of God. Uh, On a run, presumably, in an earlier example, it was the cry of a hawk. But what are, in recent history, some of the things that have helped you recover some orientation, recover some level of connection with the Father as your close covering? Definitely those two as being some of the most recent ones. I would add to that some of what we've already been talking about, that it might not come right away, but it is that orienting piece of this isn't wasted time. This isn't just me that's wrestling through this. Even just swapping stories about that with other guys can be super helpful. Like, really? Wait, it's not just me that goes to mow a lawn and then the lawnmower doesn't work? It's not just me that goes to go for my first bike ride and almost everything is wrong with the bike? It isn't just me that tries to make a meal for my family and I totally ruin it? Like, why does it seem... Surely I'm not this incompetent. Surely I don't have two left feet and I'm just breaking everything I interact with. I think you'd experience some helpful orientation in hearing that the stories that you experience are mirrored by everyone around you, that there is this intense, low-laying thwarting that just does seem to be part of the testing, part of the atmosphere, part of the, the world particularly of young men, that we are keenly aware of it. Like our, our wives respond very differently to these things. They are wrestling through other things, but they don't have the same level of identity, reality, up for grabs when the water heater goes out. But they just don't. There's something else. Like, you're going to go do with it, and you are going to be fine, even if it doesn't go well. And it's just, just wow, you, you are having a completely different reaction to this than I'm having. And so... Uh, even just that, the hawk, the voice, sometimes it's just having that, oftentimes it's that piece of, okay, I'm not alone in this, and I want this to be for something. So what is this particular one for? And it might be after the fact. Often it is, but that isn't wasting it. As Susie would say it all the time at her job, if you remembered, you didn't forget. We asked some guys around the outpost about this experience. They identified. And then they said, it's funny, my wife usually doesn't feel that way about difficulty. And we went, why is that? Where is the difference? And here's you know, a couple off-the-cuff theories. Yeah. I think that in the constitution of a man, you can't get away from the feeling that it is your problem. And so there's almost no way not to take every setback personally Mm. because if you are designed to rule and designed for mastery, everything that goes wrong is a direct affront to your mastery or is a new challenge to measure your level of skill and go, you know, if I... There's one where I... If I didn't think... 
if it really wasn't my problem, it's the same way I feel about other things, or it's the same way I feel about things breaking in other people's houses, where I do not respond the same way, even if I go help, because it's no, just nothing's up for grabs. This is not my problem. I'm like, sure, I'll come over and help you install some cabinets. The stakes are very low on your identity when it is not your house. So nice. A couple thoughts come to mind by way of conclusion. One of them is both a desire and an encouragement to push into it. You know, where the major changes have taken place for me or are taking place for me in this territory, it's not in the fleeting, a thing goes wrong and I experience this. It's actually by sitting for a bit and going, what is that? What am I so mad at? What am I so frustrated at? And to unpack the story, it's like one of the great skills of the heart, right? Pay attention to what I'm feeling and try to put additional words on it. We both have wives who ask questions about emotions, so we're familiar with the anger is a masking emotion, or as M likes to tell me, frustration is not an experience. Frustration is a response to something, and sort of a contest between several emotions and experiences. What emotions are you feeling? And to begin unpacking that. And the other is we, as men, are made to live an intimate union with our Father. Like we are meant to experience the Father heart of God, filling our days, being the strength that sustains our kingdom, and like being the confidence with which we walk out difficulty. And to go, wow, if it really were that, and that really were that opposed, I would take my view of the Father very, very seriously and begin to push in in this territory to what has the effect been of nagging difficulty over time on my view of the Father? And then what would it look like? Or how would I begin to actually replace that with someone who was the opposite, like close, not distant, enjoyable, not dismissive, interested, not on his way to do something more important. <laughs> 